Welcome to What's the Buzz Without a Podcast. This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlanta, Canada, who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in the region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. My name is Andrew Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Catherine Dempsey. Enthusiastic Newfoundland beekeeper, a founding member of the Newfoundland Beekeeping Association, and also now a published author with a new book out related to beekeeping. And I'd like to welcome Catherine. It's lovely to be here, Andrew, and to have a chance to chat. Yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. So just get, to give us a little idea of your background, I wonder if you could explain to us how you uh, came to be a beekeeper and, and um, some of the details around that. Oh, well... Um, I've always been interested in, in insects and uh, things to do with, with nature and the garden. And I have quite a large backyard and we planted fruit trees and things like that in our four acres. And so um, after I retired from full-time work, I uh, thought it would be nice to have some bees um, and just let them work on the land. So off, off I went and found a fellow called Aubrey Golding here in Newfoundland. He had Paradise Farms and he was the only beekeeper I knew um, who was operating on the Avalon Peninsula. Uh, so two hours with Aubrey one evening um, and at the end of that, this was all about 2011, I, at the end of that and that was in a June and I said oh I have to have time to make equipment and to read and to do everything. That's all I got from Aubrey was that there was way more to it than just running out and buying a hive. And then I was lucky enough to uh, figure out what I needed, pick up some books, start reading. And then we suddenly had some other people interested and decided, why don't we get together and share some knowledge? So. Um, in the fall of 2014, we went to a meeting, we all met up in Cornerbrook at um, an agricultural conference and um, talked to a bunch of people. It turned out we had about 35 people wanted to talk to each other. So we decided to form an association. Um, and away we went. And now we have um, a lot of beekeepers. It was just as it was beginning coming sort of back into fashion to uh, want to keep bees, you know. So um, we were able to uh, start offering a little bit of shared expertise. We, we weren't experts. And of course, we had realized that we don't have varroa mite here and we don't have tracheal mites or wax moths or small hive beetles. We have lousy weather. But um, the rest of it is really um, quite promising. And you start to learn about the different eco niches in the province. It's better to keep them in Central and over in the Cormac Valley than it is on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, 
anyway, away we went. And uh, 10 years, 11 years later, I've still got these. Excellent. So truly a pioneer with that group to, to set up beekeeping in Newfoundland, which you say has definite advantages in terms of the pests and disease that you have to, to manage on the island, but some disadvantages as well. So beekeeping is a special activity in Newfoundland and very unique to the island. Maybe if you, you could tell us a little bit about the benefits and challenges of doing that in Newfoundland. Okay, well, um... Um, I'll uh, go back quite a ways. Uh, the, the biggest beekeeper here were the Skinners over in Pasadena on the West Coast. And when Wally Skinner started getting bees in the 70s, he was doing the style of beekeeping. This is pre-Varroa. And what people did was they got bees in the spring and they killed them all in September, took all the honey, and then they just started over again with the new, new packages. And then we started having diseases and things in the province in the eighties put in um, bans on moving equipment and actually bringing bees in from other parts of the country. So we had to learn how to overwinter our bees. Um, so our bees, are really have been bred by the Skinners and um, Wally's got two daughters who both are um, very good beekeepers and um, one of them is Alison Van Alten up in uh, Ontario and was involved in getting the Ontario Tech Transfer team started. Um, anyway they, they came up with a bee that is uh, sort of Italian background mostly um, very gentle, makes a very small cluster through the winter. So it doesn't use a lot of energy within the hive. And then in the spring, the girls get started laying and the hives just explode. But of course, I'm talking about mid-June <laughs> for getting going. Um, we don't have the 20 degree weather to allow for mating flights until the end of June. So it's mid-July at the earliest before we're able to produce nukes to um, pass on to new beekeepers. So we got, they've got to work really hard through that um, very short season from you know, mid-July till mid or, mid or end of September. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, lots of rain drizzle and fog we even have a short name for it rdf and uh even the weather people use that they'll say oh lots of rdf this weekend anyway um and we know that bees don't like to be wet and they need good weather to get out and fly so and, and the flowers need it to open up you know there's nothing like sitting and looking at your dandelions going thank god they're up and then they're all closed up because of the weather um so that's our biggest challenge. Um, not having the Varroa has been amazing, but um, also what that leads to is um, we've, we've had people get started um, with bees, not a lot of um, real understanding. It's, it's grown so fast, it's been hard to help everybody. Um, so in the, in the downtown St. John's area, there were suddenly lots of people with one or two hives and and then we started having swarms. And so um, there were things when we first started in 2015, 2016, we were saying honeybees cannot overwinter outside of a hive. 
Well, that's not true. We've got swarms. We know of swarms that have made it through in abandoned trailers, um, in houses, in old sheds, and in trees. So not many big trees, not big enough to really hold a hive and hold a new colony, but um, but it is happening. So we're seeing things start to happen, and we've got to um, hopefully learn from everything that the people on the mainland know, so that we can avoid some of the problems that have hit the rest of the country, you know, and the rest of the continent. Yeah, I, and I know the, the the little bit of exposure that I've had to the Newfoundland beekeeping community, that what you lack in numbers, you certainly make up for in enthusiasm. Yes, and um, people like to talk to each other. They like to interact, and uh, that that's very nice, especially for a chatty Cathy like me. Mm. I, and and those swarms, I, I can't imagine that they were left for too long once people found out about them, because one of the challenges with the unique situation in Newfoundland is you can't import packages of bees easily, you know, and, and not at all under the current circumstances. So those swarms would be of value um, for beekeepers and, and also um, you want not to lose that potential in your industry because every every oh, exactly warm is a hive of bees that someone could be looking it after is. managing our people are really getting good at um, learning how to do splits and nukes the you know the people who started with one or two hives are finding that gee by the time summer's rolling along they might have five or six and and then there's able to to sell them to recoup money or share with each other. There's different things that are happening. Um, we're trying to work hard on quality of beekeeping, you know, so that people do reach out for inspections of their hives and um, all the best practices that we know of, um, which I find really uh, encouraging to see that people are willing to do that. Um, and we can't get packages of bees here so it's all done through nukes or splits and uh and catching a few swarms but um there's only been a couple of people involved in doing you know swarm extrication or um collection um and some of them uh, I, they're even applying the rules there so um there was a fellow uh who does it down the down the shore or up the shore they take the bees and they don't charge anything for it. They would if there was some work that needed to be done after you ripped a wall out, but, um, and he's a carpenter too, but um, they take the bees and they are a long distance from everybody else. So they feel that even though we don't think we have any diseases, they actually quarantine those bees and watch them for a year and see how well they get established. So, you know, just being that much, that careful at the beginning, we were really big on sharing equipment and sharing all sorts of stuff. And people are not doing that now. We're getting way more into biosecurity. Yeah, you know, but importantly, and you know, and, yeah. and those practices you've just described, we all should be aware of that. Um, I know there's there's people who quite enthusiastically go out and gather swarms in 
the rest of the Atlantic region without uh, probably enough consideration of what does that mean for their operation as a whole, because you bring that, that group of bees into your apiary and you don't know what the disease risk is, then the potential there to damage the rest of your, your bees is quite high. So it's great to hear you're doing that, but we should also practice that as well in the rest of, the, rest of our region. We're trying to be aware of, of potential problems so that we can be proactive instead of reactive. Yeah, sure. And then be reactive when we have to. Yes, yes, certainly. And you have a plan in place to deal with the Varroa if it does arrive in Newfoundland, which I've read an excellent document, which was created through through your association and your group. It is. And um, I give a huge amount of gratitude and credit to Peter Armitage, who um, has championed that. He hooked us up with uh, Dr. David Peck, who was, uh, had a, a lot of experience in that. Um, and then um, Dr. Steve Walsh, who is, well, he was a DFO um, scientist, but um, he's retired and is keeping bees here in, um, in my area. And uh, they had the science, they were able to put the scientific knowledge and apply a huge amount of thought to it. And we figure um, we're, we're going to try and have a sent. It's been accepted now, I think, and sent to the province. And the next step is to have volunteers have sentinel hives near the harbors and the ports and um, hopefully uh, watch out. And the other thing we'd like to do is to have at the ferries, if, um, when, when you're at the ferry, that they would ask you, are you bringing any used bee equipment across the straits and then take it away from them? Um, <laughs> really bad to say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard lesson that new beekeepers might have to learn then. Um, and yeah. certainly raising awareness around that for people who are just uh, being introduced mm -hmm. to beekeeping is, is important because it's, it's a tempting offer. When you stop and think about the risk that you're taking of putting your bees into used equipment, you know, just generally, not just specific to Newfoundland, but no. anywhere, and you're spending a lot of money and time and, and you think, well, I can get a, a used tie body for a few dollars, you know the new one which false, you're... false economy it is it is absolutely yeah. yeah the other thing we have been encouraging and the association has been encouraging is the development of people to create nukes and it looks like we're getting more nukes coming out so we're better able to answer the demand and um that means that there's less um temptation to smuggle bees in but it costs a fair bit here you know and people are starting to realize just what the true cost is of producing nukes it's not cheap and i think beekeepers have always sort of operated in this half business-like manner where they they don't want it to cost too much i think they and they undervalue some of their time and effort in producing these things and other people say well hell i can make a nuke well they haven't got any bees they can't no they got to get them to start with and then after that it's all freebies right yes that's right beekeepers are so enthusiastic that they 
don't value their time as they should because no. it's something they do because of the passion. The industry, uh, certainly here in, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and, and Prince Edward Island is very involved with pollination of wild blueberries. And that's probably less so in Newfoundland, but certainly there is an emerging pollination industry for, for Newfoundland beekeepers, is there not? Yeah, there is. And um, that's been a tricky one. First of all, our wild blueberry um, fields, um, the people I've known who were growing wild blueberries have not managed to tame the locals to stop running their ATVs through the fields and stealing the berries, okay? So they just, they do not believe that a piece of open land is not free for them to just um, do whatever they want on. But the cranberry growers, have um, been really looking for pollination services. They got lots of money a few years ago to get going on cranberries. And I don't think anybody seriously thought about what was going to be necessary for pollination. And now all of a sudden there's acres and acres and acres. And they thought that they were going to, that somehow this should come very cheap to them. So it's taken a lot and luckily the government was very supportive that um, we could not bring in Bombus impatience because of course that is not native to Newfoundland yes. and the Queens do overwinter and they knock out our other native bumblebees. Um, they can take over the territory. So um, they're not, that, that's not been allowed. That's put more pressure on people to supply honeybees for pollination services. And we haven't really got as many as we need yet, but there is a market developing and the success that the fellows who have got um, uh, cranberry fields and have had pollination services has started to produce, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna really try. We tried to do some matchmaking between them. I called it Bee Harmony. Um, but uh, so far, people have to do their own reaching out. We tried to come up with the best practices uh, document to help guide both sides so that they make a win-win-win, a win for the bees, win for the cranberries, and win for the beekeepers set up. And learn some wonderful things. Actually, talking to Mario uh, Zwinkle, uh, he... Uh, did something I think at last year's at a meeting last year and he said he just keeps his his pollination hives on little trailers and he just rolls them into the field and leaves them and then he rolls them out made took a huge amount of work out and all it was was the cost of a small trailer you know so yeah, Mario, he, he's a very um, experienced and intelligent beekeeper here in Nova Scotia and always willing to share his his ideas. And I know his his concept of just trailering the bees to pollination has worked out really, really well for him. So along with the, the growth and the demand for pollination services with the uh, cranberry industry, you've got quite a strong demand in Newfoundland for honey. Yes, and local honey. Um, it That is growing. I, my last number I got, which was not, uh, it's a couple of years old now, was that we were only producing about 65 to 75,000 
dollars worth of honey within the province. So we don't really need to export any yet. We are getting an, a really good price for local wildflower honey. We're working um, to uh, help build those markets and it shows up in the stores now on a regular basis, which is very nice to see. Mm. So it sounds like there's great opportunity in Newfoundland for people who wish to keep bees through the increased uh, demand for pollination services and the excellent market for local honey. Something we didn't talk about, Andrew, was um, that our, our agriculture is actually very far behind other parts of Canada. So we have a lot, we have very small footprint of um, arable land. Um, and we have to uh, allow for around the edges of farms. We're trying to help get farmers to keep wildflowers in those kinds of areas so that we can keep um, growing. But we also, uh, and this is, this is Catherine speaking personally right now, okay? Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of, of anybody, but I would not like to see beekeeping come to the point where we had people with 3,000 hives or the large scale commercial practices that happen in other places. We don't have the um, ecology to support it. And um, that would put a terrible strain on our native bees. And we don't have the problems yet that other places are having where native species are being overwhelmed even, you know, we don't need to make honeybees into an enemy by being too greedy, as long as we can get the really high prices for honey. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, nobody's, nobody's making a living from it except one fellow who's really expanding in the middle, then he's all beekeeping and he's gone into making a juice, cranberry juice mixed with honey. Nice. It's really good. Yeah. So that's a value added product. Yeah, it does sound nice. So one of the other things that we want to talk about today, and probably most importantly, is all of this beekeeping experience for the last 10 years, you've been mm -hmm. looking after bees, has led you to write a book. It did. Actually, the book sort of just uh, popped out um, <laughs> in a funny sort of way. I um, there's uh, a lot of interest from the schools and from our agriculture in the classroom program here and Little Green Thumbs and all that, that good stuff the Federation of Agriculture does. But so I was going into schools to help with some of the presentations that they were doing. And um, to see the interest of the children, I thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have a book that had a little girl who's about 10 years old and she helps her grandmother with her grandmother's hives. And so over the course of a year, Daphne gets her own hive and she has to build it in the spring. And then she helps her grandmother take a split, start a new queen. Um, she gets stung. I, there was no, no action. So I decided Daphne had to get stung and she should because um, that's real. Um, and then there's robber wasps that come and attack the hives at one point. And she only takes a little tiny bit of honeycomb because it's her first year. So she leaves everything for the bees. And in the spring or in the winter, as they, after they wrap the hives up and put them away, 
um, she's dreaming about the next year. So um, spoiler alert, um, the bees are gonna live through the winter so that Daphne can actually take honey sometime. <laughs> it's a beautifully illustrated book. Maybe Catherine, if you could just tell us a little bit about the illustrations and the illustrator. Well, that was just so fortuitous. Um, Veselina Tomova is one of the Bulgarians who came to Newfoundland back in the early 90s. She was trained as a book, as a graphics person working with books. And um, she's an artist in her own right. And her work is very good. And she has been a friend of mine since the 90s. So when I had the book written, the first version of it, I asked her if she would be interested in helping illustrate it because it needed pictures to sell. And she said yes. And then we talked to the publisher and um, who Veselina has worked with a lot. Anyway, the next thing I know, she started producing all these um, paintings. And well, she came out. She didn't really know a lot about beekeeping. So she came out and she wandered around the yard and she went into my shed and she um, the front of the book has a picture of my house. It's <laughs> all painted and done as individual paintings. So they're going to be at the opening. And my Christmas present from my husband was the cover. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So, so that's the picture of, of Daphne, which people will obviously see when they purchase a book. Yeah. Daphne surrounded by flowers. And, that's and right. Yeah. And um, when we started talking, um, she said, um, what do you think Daphne should look like? And I said, uh, I was just getting ready to say something. She said, I see red hair. <laughs> and I said, hmm, that is very interesting because Daphne is named from my best friend from childhood who was a redhead with gray eyes who was distantly related to L.M. Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables. Oh my. So she knew that Daphne was a redhead, just like I did. My cats are in the, my cat, Andy is in the book all over the place because Veselina loves cats. And um, all my chickens, they're in the book. And uh, so it's just been fun to uh, see her interpretation of, my my yard <laughs> and and that certainly comes through in the book you know with the, with your writing style and and the uh, the illustrations you can see that you you had that connection there oh yeah she's she's a wonderful artist the the writing is excellent i wish that i had have had this for my son when he started to get interested interested in beekeeping so i think for for families to share this with their with their young beekeepers, gonna be a great success. And I think every beekeeper who has children or grandchildren needs to get a copy of this. Oh, it, thank you. It's excellent. As they say, my son, when he uh, when he started to get interested in beekeeping, he, he uh, like most children, didn't like to go to bed. And he would pick up the beekeeping books that, you know, the textbooks that, that oh, typically we have around our house as beekeepers. And he'd be reading them. And I, I suspected that it was more of a ploy not to be sent to bed if he could sit and quietly read these books. <laughs> 
until one day I heard him talking to his friends and explaining the life cycle of a bee to them. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, when you, you um, were kind enough to give me a copy of this, I said, this is great. This is what we need for, for oh, kids. Because I think to encourage that next generation of beekeeping is really important. I think so too. We had um, a high school here in, in the province um, ask and put a hive up at the botanical garden. And then the botanical garden has now developed some a couple of other hives. They've had people get interested and they're going to have a sort of a bee um, club. They've got a chalet down near where the hives are and they're setting it up as an exhibit, um, which is going to be exciting. Um, I felt that the book was something to read together as well, Andrew, you mentioned that. And it was a sharing book because um, grandma is sharing her experience with Daphne um, and Daphne is sharing time with grandma. So I felt it was a really nice book to read together. Um, I'm looking forward to the launch. Yeah, and that's the, the, exactly the feeling I got when I when I read the book. It's about beekeeping, yet it's about that family sharing as well. So when is the launch then, Catherine? Tell us when it's going to be launched and perhaps where we could get our hands on a copy. Okay, well, there's a couple of ways. Um, first of all, the book is actually being launched on the 13th of March, Sunday the 13th. And we're going to a place called Murray's Pond, which is um, in Portugal called St. Philip's. Um, for the afternoon. Um, the book is published by Running the Goat Books and Broadsides, and it's distributed by Nimbus um, Publications out of Nova Scotia, who do the can Canadian distribution. Um, so what I have found, and this is new since the days when I used to run a bookstore, which was before computers, um, you can type, go to your favorite bookstore and type in Daphne's Bees and on a, a search line, on an online search line, and it'll come up and you can place an order. And then the bookstore, if they got two or three orders that way, they'd probably bring some in to keep. Or if you're in Newfoundland, you can get in touch with um, uh, Marnie Parsons and uh, at... Uh, running the goat books and broadsides, and she can place an order. Um, rest of Canada, try the other way. Okay. Great. My suspicion is that this is not the end of Daphne's adventure with honeybees. No, I mean, you can't leave a girl having had one little bit of honey. That was my first experience was taking, I took one cup of comb out of one of the brood boxes of my first year that was all I took and it was the best thing I'd ever tasted and then I watched how they rebuilt the comb so Daphne had a little taste but next year or the next book I'm calling at the moment it's a working title Daphne's Backyard Bees because um, she's going to carry on with her hive and take a split probably because she's got to have more than one it's best practices is at least two um, but um, she's also now looking at the world and recognizing these different bees in her own yard. So I want to take a look at the life cycle of the bumblebee and the leaf cutter bee for sure. And maybe the digger bee, I'm just gonna have Daphne find them. Her, her backyard is very prolific. 
Great. So something for us to look forward to. But immediately this this book should be available as you've explained through through yeah. local you can books. Go, you can go online right away and look it up at your favorite bookstore and right. encourage them to carry it. Well, I'd just like to thank you very much, Catherine, for spending some time with us. And well, thank you. I enjoy the, the podcast. I'm always listening. Thank you very much. And, and it's guests like you that make this easy and something that uh, can be shared with our beekeeping community along with, with excellent things like Daphne's Bees. So interesting okay. to find, in, find out more about that. So thanks again and best of luck. Thanks a lot. Your What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer Team for Ape Culture and Perennia Food and Agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com. And find us on Twitter, Atta at Atlantic Bee.